And we've been taking a few weeks, this set of three weeks here, to talk about who we are as a church, what's important to us as a church, and then today, what's, what's next for us as a congregation moving forward. Uh, we talked the first week about the purpose. Why, why are there churches in the first place? Why is there this church here? And the, the short answer comes from the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The Lord said, go out and make disciples of all nations. That's the operative verb is make disciples as you go, as you baptize, as you teach. But to make disciples, Jesus says to his 12 or the 11 at the time, do for other people what I did for you. And that's what we are continuing to do. And our specific emphasis as a congregation, meaning Calvary Chapel Trustville within the greater church, is that Ephesians 2 verse 10 that just lights my fire every time we talk about it, where it says the Lord has works prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Isn't that awesome that God has a divine to-do list for you to do in your life? That there's a plan, there's a calling that you get to be part of? Our congregation, our ministry, we want to help everybody that walks through those doors find out what those works are and then give you everything you need, training spiritually, materially, whatever, to accomplish it and then send you out to do it. And that ranges from learning how to talk to those in your neighborhood about the Lord and perhaps inviting them to church and teaching them how to do that, all the way to something wild like going over to Africa and planting a church and being a missionary full time, selling all that you have and traveling the country as an evangelist. I don't know. Whatever God's called you to do from the what we would call normal or mundane, even though we know there's no such thing, the Holy Spirit is in all of it, to things that seem a little more wild and radical. We want to help everybody that comes in this room find out what that is, get everything they need, and then send you out to go do it. Last time, we talked about our six important things. Do you remember these? The things that are going to characterize our ministry no matter what we do. And it's important that those sorts of things can be picked up and placed anywhere in the world. If your ministry model would be useless in the jungles of Brazil, for example, then maybe you should take a, a second look at it. You know, the, the strategy might change, but hopefully the important things don't. Now we talk about the most, most important thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That story, that message, that Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and rose from the dead and offers you eternal life by grace through faith. That's the motivation for everything we do. It's the most, most important thing. We're evangelical, which what does that mean? It means we actually believe that. It's not symbolic, it's not code, it's not culture, it's true. Now, the most important thing, not the most, most important thing, but the most important thing, I did this joke all last week, I'm gonna keep on going with it is the Word of God. The Word of God. We study the Word of God. We emphasize the Word of God because it's inspired. It's inerrant. It's infallible. We're going to teach it. We're not going to teach about it. We're not going to teach from it. We're going to teach it to you. The Word of God. The other most important thing, but not the most most important thing, the other most important thing, not higher or lower than the other, is the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. We believe in the baptism and the filling with the Holy Spirit. We believe in all the gifts of the Spirit. We believe in the active work of prophecy and miracles and tongues. But not only that, we believe in the equally necessary works of administration and discernment and mercy and helps and giving. All these things are necessary because if we're going to find the works God has called us to do and then do them, you can't do that on your own. You need the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's the most important thing. 
And there were some other important things too, though they were not most or most most important. They're still important. One of which was grace in all things. That relates to how we treat each other. We treat each other with the same grace that Jesus showed us. And that, first of all, means an active brotherly love for one another. But as we also discussed, it also includes a healthy sense of mind your own business. It's not your job to go into everybody's life and start teaching them and showing them what to do and say, this is how I live my life, now you have to do this. Well, no, not necessarily. It's your job to lead people to Jesus and help them do what Jesus has called them to do. Remember, the pastor especially is a quartermaster. My job is to equip you to go do what God's calling you to do, not to live your life for you or boss you around. Believe me, that is not something I'm interested in doing. And if you find a pastor that really does want to boss you around, just, you know, be careful. That's all I'll say. The other important thing, not the most important thing, but the important thing is a love for the lost. We are not an inward church, or at least we shouldn't be. We are an outward-focused congregation. We don't exist for our own sake. We exist to find those that are dying and going to hell without Jesus and bring that gospel to them. To bring the good news, not just the bad news. Some people, like, they, they get all upset because the church doesn't tell the bad news enough. And that's important, right? You have to tell the bad news. You have to talk about sin. You have to talk about hell. You have to talk about the blood. All the rest of that. But as Christians, we believe in the good news, <laughs> We're not just going out there to tell the world that they're in sin. We're out there to tell the world they're in sin and that there's good news. There's forgiveness available in Christ Jesus. A love for the lost. That's our outreaches. We go to the prisons. We go to the public schools. We go to the pregnancy centers and wherever else God may lead us. We're going to go to where we can find lost people and we're going to minister to them and tell them about Jesus. And number three, the other third important thing was rebuilding the foundations. This is that cultural awareness. Now, y'all know we are not really a, a political group here. I have no problem with that. But I see the Lord had a chance to do anything he wanted to change the world. And he sent out the church to go make disciples. So when people say, what are you doing to take a stand about such and such? This is what we're doing. This congregation is what we are doing. And if you doubt that, just start talking to some folks after church. Talk to the people whose marriages were healed because they came in here. And now they're on the path to divorce, but now they're going to stay together. That's one family brought back. The people that were all obsessed and worried about things going on, and they find the peace and joy that only Jesus can provide. These are the kind of stories that Jesus wants us to go out and make. However, that does not mean that we're going to stick our head in the sand and be like holy ostriches and ignore what's going on in the world. You open up the Bible and you teach it, stuff's going to come up. You've learned that. We just read through Deuteronomy, and you might be sick and tired of hearing about transgender issues. Well, when Deuteronomy has a verse in there that says, a man shall not dress like a woman, and a woman shall not dress like a man, it's going to come up. And I'm not going to spend all of my time focusing on those things, but we have a heart and a desire to rebuild those foundations, not to sing a, a holy dirge over the death of our nation. It's like, no, Jesus can restore anything. But it's only Jesus can, that can restore that, which is why the gospel is the most, most important thing. Amen? Okay, so we got our mission. We know why we're here, the purpose of why we exist. We know the important things, the, the ideas that are going to guide that no matter what. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk today, if you want to give a, a one-word title, we kind of have gone uh, priority or identity, priority, and today is strategy. Those things that I just described are never going to change. And if they ever do, it is your responsibility to come to me and let me know, Tyler, we're not prioritizing the word of God anymore. 
Tyler, where's the power of the Spirit? Why don't, why aren't we emphasizing that anymore? Tyler, you've gotten really hostile towards the lost. You're not showing love. That's, that's our responsibility together. Those things will and should never change. But here's what happened. After our five-year anniversary, which was a, a really fun day, we had a prayer meeting that night, and we spent so much time praying and seeking the Lord and calling on the Lord to show us what to do next. You know, you've been given orders from above. We, we know the character of the mission, but what are we doing to accomplish that? And as we prayed, we prayed with expectation, and today we can say God has answered that prayer. So that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit today, are the things that we're going to be doing next as a congregation. What are we doing in order to fulfill that? And as I go through these, we'll get to them in a little bit. But some of this is going to feel like, all right, so you're just kind of giving us an update on, you know, what you do during the day, Tyler, that's great. But, you know, well, here's the reason is, first of all, you're part of this. This is not you coming and watching me do things, God forbid. All right. This is us together. I'm hoping that the Lord will catch the vision in your heart and that some of these things will catch your attention. And say, I want to be part of that. I want to do that. I know how to do that. Let me go help them and show them how to do that so that we can do this together. But I want to start by giving us a biblical example of what I'm talking about here. And that's in Acts chapter 13. We're just going to look at the first three verses. And in case you didn't know, we do have a, a full verse-by-verse -verse study all the way through the book of Acts on the website. It's on YouTube. It's on Spotify if you'd like to go and check that out sometime. But we're just going to look at this section here. Now there were in the church at Antioch, this is in Syria, prophets and teachers... Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And right after that begins the first missionary journey in your Bible. Let's look at this here. This is the church in Antioch. Antioch was in Syria, and it's unique in the book of Acts because it is the first example of a truly mixed congregation in the church. There were Gentiles that were allowed in the church of Jerusalem. They were not excluded, but they were certainly a decided minority. And also, we can read between the lines some other passages, they probably were made to feel lesser than. Antioch is amazing in that these Gen uh, Jews were kicked out of Jerusalem because of the persecution. They go to these other places, they begin to preach the gospel, and now all of these Greeks and Syrians and other Gentiles are getting saved, and the church itself becomes a signal to the rest of the church that, wow, that's how God's going to do this in the future, bringing Jew and Gentile together, breaking down the barrier, bringing them all. And you can see this even through the leadership that's described here. First of all, you got Barnabas. We all know that name, but his real name was Joseph. His real name was Joseph. He was from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean. And the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. It was a nickname. Early church used nicknames quite a bit. So did Jesus, if you go back and read your New Testament. The son of encouragement. Why? Because Barnabas was a rich man. You know, God doesn't only save poor people, right? He saved this rich man who sold this big piece of property he had, gave all the money to the church so that they could distribute it to those that were widows and those who had need. And that's why he was given that nickname, the Son of Encouragement. He was the one that had gone up to Tarsus and retrieved Paul, Saul of Tarsus, to come and join them in this work at Antioch. We'll talk more about that in a second. 
you got this guy named Simeon called Niger. Now, Niger is a Greek word, and it's related to, for example, the word Nigeria. It means black in Greek. So you have Simeon, which is a Jewish name, called Niger. So what you have here is a Jewish man of African descent. So perhaps he had converted, perhaps his parents had, but you have not just a, a Jew from Cyprus here, you now have a Jew from pro probably Southern Africa, maybe Ethiopia. We know that there was an Ethiopian that had been saved, but perhaps it was totally unrelated. In any case, you have this black man as part of the leadership in the church at Antioch. So in case you or anybody you know has a problem with that kind of thing, it's right there in your Bible. But what, what are we starting to see? People being brought together. Neither of these men were from Jerusalem, but they're in the leadership of this church here. Next, you have this guy named Lucius, who's from Cyrene. Cyrene, you might think of Simon of Cyrene from Mark 15. He was the one that was compelled to carry the cross for Jesus when he couldn't carry it anymore. Cyrene was in Libya. So another African who is here in this uh, in this congregation. We don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile. Lucius is certainly a more Greek name than uh, some of the other ones you see. So you might have here a Gentile in the leadership who's from Libya, which is adjacent to uh, Egypt. Next, you have this guy, Manaean, which is another Greek name, so probably a Gentile, but maybe not, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Herod the Tetrarch. This is the guy that is going to stand up and give a speech later, and they're going to say, oh, the voice of, a, of God and not a man is going to get eaten by worms. You remember that story? This was the son of King Herod that tried to, uh, tried to have Jesus killed as a baby. And it's also Herod the king who had Jesus executed along with Pontius Pilate. He's a friend of this man. So what does this make this guy? Important. <laughs> Important. Rich. Famous, influential family, grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. Wealthy and influential. And yet, we find him here in Antioch, helping lead this congregation with Simeon, called Niger, Lucius, Barnabas. He's kind of stepping down as far as his social status goes. But here he is. That's what the gospel does. This is important because people who are poor can start to have a resentment towards the rich and think that the gospel gives them permission to do that. It's absolutely not true. It's not that money is evil. It's that the obsession and love of money leads to evil. And the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that you are not supposed to pervert justice on behalf of the rich or the poor. Money is not a thing. It's an object that can be used for good or for evil. So when the Lord brings his church together, it only makes sense. You've got rich and you've got poor. And what we can see from this, it is uh, apparently riches or poverty had nothing to do with whether or not you were qualified to lead in God's church. So that's good. And then you have Saul. Saul, the former Pharisee. The Pharisee. Jesus has a, has a Pharisee in his church. It's actually kind of funny. If you read through the book of Acts, the Pharisees are still making trouble. A lot of them got saved. They had a hard time letting go of those traditions. But Saul was the Pharisee that had persecuted the church. The church in Antioch had begun because of the persecution that Paul instigated, driving Jews out of Jerusalem, Jewish Christians, to where they went and took the gospel with them. So he kind of blew on that dandelion called the church and the seeds went everywhere. And now he's, had, he's leading this church along with these other men. He had been struck down on the road to Damascus by an appearance of the Lord. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And now here he is, not going out to persecute Christians, leading Christians. Not only leading Christians, leading Christians that were Gentiles. 
His, all of his ethnic pride has been broken because of the cross. He knows now that me being a Jew and being a Pharisee and being important and keeping the law is not nearly as important. That doesn't tie me to other people nearly as much as the blood of Jesus does. He had been in exile for 17 years, and he was returned to Antioch when Barnabas said, you know who would be great for this? That guy, Saul of Tarsus. Let's get him to help out with this work here. Because it seems like not very many people wanted to minister in the church at Antioch. Like, I don't know, there's a bunch of Gentiles up there, and they're, you know, they're not like us, and they don't eat like us, and they don't really look like us, and can you find somebody else? But of course, the son of encouragement is like, I'll do it. And he went and found Saul. What you have here is very similar to what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant concerning spiritual gifts. Very closely related to the work that God has prepared before us, right? Ephesians 2.10, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one. And it's manifest differently. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, there's different things that he empowers you to do. Some people receive gifts of teaching and prophecy. Some people receive gifts of healing and miracles. Some people receive gifts of mercy and encouragement. Some people receive gifts of teaching and exhortation or discernment or administration or giving or evangelism, all manner of things. And when you bring them all together, that's the church. Paul compares us to a body. He says, if you say, well, I don't really need my fingers because I, they can't hear anything. It's ridiculous. They're not supposed to hear anything. <laughs> they're supposed to feel things. Said, what if the eye says to the ear, I don't need you. You can't see nothing. It's like, well, that's, the ear is not supposed to see anything. And your eyes aren't supposed to hear anything. So he makes the point, don't look down on somebody else or yourself because you don't have certain functions or gifts in the body of Christ. We need them all to come together. And that's what the church is for. So here they are, gathered together, much like we are today. And they were ministering to the Lord, worshiping, fasting, praying, seeking God. What next, Lord? And then the Holy Spirit speaks. Note that. The Holy Spirit is personal. He speaks to them. He says, set apart for me, set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. The Holy Spirit, through it would seem the prophetic ministry of these guys in prayer and fasting, begins to speak about what he's got next for Saul and Barnabas, later to be called Paul and Barnabas. Works that I have called them to do. We already went over this, but Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you've been saved, there is a work to which God has called you to do. 1 Corinthians 7.17 says, Let each one live the life to which God has called him and to which he has assigned him. Your life has been assigned to you. Haven't you found that sometimes you try to do something and it's almost like God is pulling you back and saying, no, not that? Now, you can just break that, that leash if you want to and do whatever you want. You're not going to be happy about it. And Colossians 1, Paul says, I desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. God wants you to know what it is and know what to do. And here's an example of this. It's not just for Paul and Barnabas. It's for everybody in this room. Everybody who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. In fact, you might say, well, it's Paul and Barnabas. Well, at the time, they weren't anybody. They were just faithful ministers of the gospel in one city among many. And then the Lord said, I've got something bigger for you. I've got something more for you to do. What do we learn from this? There are seasons of our lives. Just like the seasons are changing right now, and everybody's getting colds, and everybody's you know, nose is running because the season is changing. This happens in life, too. We move into seasons sometimes that are not so great. 
Sometimes they're great. But seasons end. Seasons turn over and transition, and God calls us on to the next step. I mentioned there was a season in my life where I was a youth pastor, and I loved it. And it was one of those things where we knew how great it was, mercifully from the Lord. We used to say, this is awesome, and we need to remember how awesome this is for later when we're not part of it anymore. I loved being a youth pastor, dealing with high school students. You could preach and just like say things and nobody was going to come up to you later and have something to say. It's like, like, let me, I'm just going to give three or four illustrations and see if any of them stick. You know, you you could give like TV and video game references to illustrate like deep theological points. They'd be like, whoa, I get it now. It was, it was hard, but man, it was so much fun. Really had so much. I dragged teenagers all over the world and those were the best by far, taking them on those mission trips. But That season ended, and I knew it was about time for it to end, and I wasn't really happy about it. I was happy about what was coming next, but the thought of, oh, goodness, I'm not going to be able to see these kids anymore. I'm not going to be with them all the time. I'm not going to be having those bonfires where we, you know, everybody's got a guitar and we sing for like five hours in the middle of the night. That's not going to happen anymore, you know, and it was time to move on. It totally was, and it was time to come and plant this church. There was a season where I worked a a second job. I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. That was a rather stinky season. I mean that very, very literally, but it was good for the time. It was what was needed, and we always knew it was a season. And so when it got tough, we could say, you know what? This is just for a time. The Lord is going to move us on to something else. Some of the biggest problems we have in life come from when the season is, it's time for the season to move over, and you try to hold on to it. Like the person that graduates high school and yet keeps on showing up to the school for some reason to hang out with everybody. It's like, yeah... You're not cool, man. <laughs> it's time to move on. It's time to keep going. Or the guy that, you know, is maybe in his 40s and he still wears his Letterman jacket. It's like, that season's over, friend. Hey, it still fits, though. Yeah, nobody cares. <laughs> season's over. Your wife maybe cares. Your kids might pretend they care. It's, that's, the season's moved on. You try to hold on to it too long, and it gets, starts to get pathetic, doesn't it? When it's like, I don't want to get married because then I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be the cool one getting out and getting to party and hang out with everybody anymore. It's like, yeah, but the longer you do that, the more everybody kind of looks at you like that icky face. Like, okay, it's time for you to grow up. When are you going to grow up? I'm never going to grow up, man. We all said we never would. And it's like, yeah, we were 11. We didn't know anything. <laughs> Seasons. God has a call for you. He has stages of life to call you into. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul was struck blind on the road to Damascus by the Lord, God told this man Ananias, who is named after Hananiah, which is also known as Shadrach from the Old Testament. Hananiah, but the Greek version would be Ananias. He says, go, go to Paul. His name was Saul at the time. Go and pray for him to be saved, to receive the Holy Spirit, and to receive his sight. Says, for I, he is my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and I will show him everything he must suffer for my sake. Paul got to know up front in that first baptism with the Spirit what God was going to call him to do. And maybe you had this similar experience where the Lord just told you, this is what I'm calling you to do. And you hear that and you go, "That's how are we supposed to get there? Maybe you really, really liked it and you started to get frustrated when it didn't happen right away. Because that's what happened for Paul. Lord, you're my chosen vessel to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Where's the first place God took him? To the desert. He went to Arabia for three years. A lot of people believe Paul was hanging out at Mount Sinai for three years. Seeking the Lord. Why? Because he's like, I just spent however old he was, probably not that old. He was a young man. Reading the Bible, 
with the thought that Jesus Christ was a liar and a fraud. Now I know that Jesus was the Messiah. I've got some reading to do. I've got some praying to do, some thinking to do. I'm going to go back and read through this law and this Old Testament over and over and over again with the knowledge of Jesus in my heart. I'm going to learn the voice of the Spirit. I'm going to pray. I'm going to build up a real spiritual life. For three, three years he did that. The chosen vessel to the Gentiles was living like a monk in the desert somewhere. For three years. What happened after that? Well, he comes back to Damascus. They run him out of town. Not for the last time in Paul's life. He goes to Jerusalem. The people there don't even want him there. In Galatians, it tells us they, they didn't like him. He only saw some of the leaders and the old Pharisees tried to have him killed. So he had to go back to Tarsus. He had to go home in disgrace and learn how to make tents. How long? 14 years. 14 years. God's chosen vessel to the Gentiles was making tents. Well, I'm sure he had a really vibrant, thriving ministry. The only person we know that got saved during that time was Titus. <laughs> so, 14 years. What were you doing 14 years ago? Imagine this whole time you've been waiting for the Lord to lead you on to the next season. Well, then Barnabas shows up. Are you Saul of Tarsus? Yes, I am. I remember you. I remember when you passed through the church and you told Peter and James and John that God had given you a call to the Gentiles. He says, yeah, I believe that. He goes, well, what are you doing? So I'm waiting. I'm waiting. So well, let me tell you, we've got this church down in Syria, in Antioch, and Gentiles and Jews are both getting saved, and they're coming together, and really having a hard time finding people to help lead that congregation. Are you open to that? We know you're the kind of guy that's willing to take the ministry to the Gentiles. And Saul says, yes. Takes Titus with him, and they go down to Antioch. And he begins to minister and serve there. Well, forever long he was there, it was probably great. He feels like, man, I'm finally doing what God has called me to do. But now they're in the middle of this prayer meeting, and the Holy Spirit says, it's time to get up and go, Saul. It's time to go out and start your missionary journeys. The next step had come. This is what you must do. You must find out what the next step is for you. You may be in a season of waiting. You may be in a season of fruitful ministry. But that doesn't mean that God cannot move you on to the next thing He's calling you to do. And we are to spend time ministering to the Lord in prayer and fasting so that we can hear God's voice to tell us what's next. Well, I'm kind of doing what God called me to do. He called me to be a minister to the Gentiles, and I'm here at the only Jew-Gentile church we know of. But how many times do they sit around the campfire saying things like, Man, we need more of these. How many Gentiles came through that church and said, we need one of these in Rome. We need one of these in Lystra. We need one of these on Cyprus. We need one in Crete or Ephesus. Maybe somebody came all the way from Gaul, which is modern-day France, all the way from Britannia, and said, Where, what are we supposed to do? I can't go back. There's no other Christians there. And it starts to sink into Saul's heart. Somebody ought to go and just go to different cities and plant churches. Yeah, that would be a great idea. Lord, please raise up somebody to plant churches. And God goes, yeah, how about that? Sometimes you've got a great idea and you don't realize that it's the Lord putting it on your heart. Some of you all know, you'll come to me and you'll ask, hey, here's a great thing that the church can do. Will you do that? I'll say, sure thing. When do you start? <laughs> well, you're the pastor. You're supposed to do all the work. No, that's not true. <laughs> Ephesians 4, my job is to equip you for the work of ministry that you've been called to do. What can I do to help you out? What can I do to make this easier for you? Find out what the next steps are and do them with all your heart. And if you want to give a, a, another title today, maybe next steps would be a good one for today. Because there are seasons in ministries as well, in churches too. 
You know, there's a season where there was no Calvary Chapel Trustville. And there were some folks meeting in my basement up in Lynchburg, Virginia, praying about it and trying to figure out how we're going to get down there. Then there was a season where we met in the hotel, which was great. But we always knew that this is not going to be a forever season. What's coming next? Then we moved into this place, and there was a season of getting established here. And there were times where I felt like we were, I was holding on by the skin of my teeth. It's like, this is good. It's happening. But, man, it wouldn't take much to... Knock it right off. Of course, then the pandemic came and the Lord showed us how he is the one that sustains the church, not us, not the skin of our teeth, right? Then there was another season where it's like, let's take, a, let's take hold of this room here. Let's get a nice open sanctuary. We can fill the place with more people. There were seasons where we started doing outreach to the prisons and so on. We prayed for that for so long. Remember how long we prayed for the Lord to give us opportunities in the prison? Now we got more than we know what to do with in the prisons, there was a season where he said, Lord, we got to get around the world and start doing missions. And now God's starting to do that. And by the way, same thing, way more opportunities than we're ever going to be able to meet. I had a great meeting this week of some really amazing missions opportunities. For a while, it was like there was nothing going on. And now it's just, you know, the flood is just coming through. And I would say that we are, if we are not in it, we are about to enter a new season as a congregation. We can, you, you can feel it if you've been here for a while. And I know you feel it because a lot of you have told me that you've been feeling it. That when we come together and we pray, it's like, I think God's got something he wants to do next. Or they come up and say, hey, Tyler, do you, what, what's the next thing God has for us? It's like, why do you ask? I just feel like there might be something coming up. To which I say, okay, I better go and pray. I better figure out what that is. We've laid a great foundation, and now it's time for us to start building on it, to keep building on it, I should say. To be clear, we are never going to change the important things. Those things will never, ever change. Nor is even the main thrust of our ministry is never going to change. And, you know, you, Lord tarries till 2099, and if I'm still around here, 108 years old, I'm going to be teaching verse by verse through the Bible and, and yelling at people to pray more. That's what, <laughs> that's what we're going to do. But I do think that in prayer, going to conferences, talking to godly people, conversation, planning, reading, I think our strategy has been made clear. I think some of our next steps have been made clear as a congregation. And the big question that I've really been sorting through here now is, how do we make the switch from being a small, intimate little church where everybody knows everybody's name and everybody's issues, and I can pray for everybody by name every single morning, to a, a larger congregation with new faces coming in almost every week? That's an awesome thing. That the Lord expands the tent poles a little bit and makes more room and brings more folks in. Okay, well, that, those important things will never change, but sometimes the approach has to change or at least has to be done a little bit differently. Maybe not because nothing's broken, but in order to scale and make sure that things keep working. And these are some of the things that I'm going to talk about this morning. Some of these are going to seem really mundane to you, like, well, duh. And some of them are going to seem a little more, oh, okay, I didn't know we were doing that. And I think there's a few that are hopefully going to blow your mind a little bit and get you real excited. But I've got 10 of them. And this is something that Zach, who's come on staff, he and I have these, these 10 things that we talk about. We're, we're list people around here. And uh, they're like, these are the things we're doing. And we had a meeting on Friday where we went through all 10 of these things. And how are we doing on these? Are we moving forward? Are we making it happen? What, are we making progress on that? And I do not see this as like a song and dance stage show 
where you all just kind of show up and amazing things happen. Because <laughs> if that's true, then I'm going to let you down every single time and nobody wants that. I don't mind opening up the door and saying, here's what we're doing. Here's what we're planning. Please keep us in prayer and please come help us if you can. So again, if you're new here, this might not seem like the Bible study you were hoping for, but these are the kind of things that we're doing as a church. So I'm going to talk about them now. Here are 10 things that we are doing Steps that we are taking in order to prepare us for the next season the Lord has. I think whatever God does, if we can do these things, they will make it better and easier for us to move forward and for the Lord to add to our number especially. The first thing, which you've already noticed some of this perhaps, is that we're going to be rearranging some of the services during the week. I love how this, it got so quiet. Everybody wanted to like listen. Like everybody catches their breath here. Well, here's what's, what's not going to change. We're going to continue to have Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night meetings. But here's a problem that I've identified for a while. This, this happened, I think, maybe in, in July or August, where I was looking at the church calendar, and I just realized there's like six things going on this week. <laughs> you've got Sunday morning, Sunday night, you've got home fellowship night, you've got an event coming up on this day, and then we've got something going on Saturday, and then you've got your Wednesday night service. And I realized that that's a lot. And as, as myself, as the pastor, looking at that, I go, I don't even know if I want to be there for all that stuff. Because, like, I have kids, and I have a life, and I've got things going on. And, but at the same time, it's not that any of them were bad things. You know, there are things that are absolutely important. I think it's, you've got to have a Sunday morning service where you're teaching through the Word of God. I also think it's important to have that midweek service where you've got an Old and New Testament balance. Sometimes it overlaps, but, like, I want to be going through both halves of the Bible the whole time. We've got to have dedicated meetings that are focused on prayer. This is always the first thing to go, and I never, I never want to stop that. But it's also important for us to get together in, in our homes and talk to one another and make friends that way. You need to have ministries for the, the youth and the men and the women, and you know, the list can go on and on. There's events, there's outreaches that have to happen, there's conferences for us to go to. And I look at that calendar and I go, how are we supposed to get all this in there? Here's the strategy, what we're going to be moving forward. We're going to be really focusing on our Sundays and Wednesdays. Sunday morning will pretty much stay the same. Starting next week when we resume our Sunday nights, Sunday nights are going to be at 6 p.m. So not 7, because I know some of you all have to drive a long way. I'm seeing some nodding heads. Praise the Lord. That's what I want to see. Because, like, listen, I, I live 30 minutes away, and I'd love to come, but if the meeting ends at, like, 8.30 or whatever, and then i got to drive all the way back, i got kids who got to get bed, get for school, we're going to move them up a little bit. And here's what we're going to do. Wednesday night's going to remain more or less the same. Sunday night is not just going to be the dedicated prayer meeting every week. Sunday night is going to be what we call the flex night. That if there's something that's going to be going on during the week that we want to happen, it's going to happen at the Sunday evening service. Let me give you an example. We just had the marriage class, which was awesome, by the way. Did everybody enjoy the marriage class? Yeah, it was awesome. We had like 45 people coming out for that, which is great. Praise the Lord. We, we laughed so hard, by the way. That might have been like a comedy hour for as much fun as we were having, like, you know, because... Whenever you're pointing out the differences between men and women pretty sharply, it's always, always funny stuff. But in the future, if we're going to do something like that, it's not going to be on Sunday right after church. We're going to do that at the Sunday night service at 6 p.m. on Sundays. That's where it's going to go. If we're going to have a men's study, like a six-week men's study, that's going to go on Sunday nights at 6 p.m. We have a women's study, same thing. Home fellowships. 
This is probably going to be the biggest change during the weekly thing, and I've spoken to some of y'all about this already and kind of tested it out, but I really think this is the right thing to do. We're going to finish up this season of home fellowships, which always will take a holiday break after the first uh, or the week before Thanksgiving. When we resume home fellowships in the new year, they also are going to be on Sunday nights. They're going to be in the various homes as we need them, but they're going to be happening in blocks, like an eight-week block of home fellowships or a six-week block of home fellowships. Why? Well, there's a couple reasons. First of all, I don't want anybody to ever feel like if you sign up to host or lead a home fellowship, you've just signed in blood until the end of time. And now you feel bad about saying, can we please do it somewhere else? Can I please not do it? It'll give more people a chance to participate. Hey, can we do it at my house this time? Give us a chance to plan things. And also, it's not an extra night of the week when people have baseball, speaking for myself there, people have work that goes late, people have other things that they do with their kids or with their families. It'll be Sunday nights. That's when our home fellowships are going to meet. We're going to give that a try. And it'll be in season. So we haven't made the calendar yet, but let's say the first month of the new year, we're still having our regular prayer meetings. Then February to March, Sunday nights, we're having home fellowships at the various places during the week. It allows us to plan them a little better, focus them a little more. Everybody can be there for that. Then maybe we take another you know, four weeks and it's prayer. Then we come back and it's a women's study on Sunday nights at that flex time. What this amounts to is there's only two days a week that we are regularly asking folks to come out for things. And there are those that could say, well, if you schedule something on Tuesday and Friday, they ought to be there because that's, that, if they're not committed, they, just shouldn't, they shouldn't come to anything. Well, okay, that's, that's nice to say. But here's something I want to say that maybe you've never heard before because I don't know if I've ever heard somebody say this before. I want you, as a member of this congregation, to have a life. <laughs> I'm going to tell you why. I do not want everything we do here at this church, that if you want to be fully involved and, and feel like you're committed to Calvary Chapel Trustville, you've got to be here five nights a week. Because what that's, what's going to happen, first of all, it's not going to happen with most people. And then you're going to get people whose only interaction with other people happens at church. I don't want that for you. Because we don't need to be here all the time. You need to be out there living the life, being salt and light for the rest of the community. Now, I, I still think that means you need to be here when we have things, but here's the way I'm phrasing it. I'm going to ask less of you most of the time so that I can ask a lot of you sometimes. Rather than saying five nights a week, be there, or, you know, I guess you're not serious about Jesus. You know, it's ridiculous. I want you taking your kids to baseball and basketball and dance and being there. I want you to be able to go out with your friends that maybe don't even know the Lord so you can talk about them. If your neighborhood's got something going on, I want you there. I want you to be able to, to work and be able to be out there and take the gospel with you. Because remember, it's not about building up what we're doing here. It's about building you up and then sending you out. Now, what does this do with our prayer meetings? This matters to me very much because I'm, I'm a, I have been sold on what Jim Simbla is selling. You need prayer meetings in the church regularly. Well, you maybe have noticed that on Sundays and Wednesdays, we've been starting to end with a response time. We're going to bring the prayer meetings to our regular services. We're going to teach you to pray. We're going to end our services with prayer time. That means I've got to teach shorter. That one's on me. <laughs> But we're going to do this here. We're still going to have prayer meetings. We're still going to have our, our seasons of Sunday night prayer. But Sundays and Wednesdays, we're going to do this. I'm going to cut it off and say we need to spend these last 15 minutes and we're going to pray. We're going to exercise our spiritual gifts together. We're going to learn how to do that classic Daniel Henderson, spirit-led, word-fed, worship-based prayer so that we all learn how to do this. And it's not something that happens on a night that you maybe can't make it out to, 
But it's every time when you come in here, we're doing this. The home fellowships are going to do it. The women's and men's groups are going to do it. Everything we do is going to have prayer in it. Does that make sense to you? So that's what we're doing. We're going to ask less of you most of the time so that I can ask a lot of you sometimes. All right? That's the first thing. And the other ones are not going to take as long as that, he said to himself, so that he didn't take up all the time again. Never mind my mental narration here. All right. The second thing, here's the second thing we're working on. We're working on building an on-ramp for newcomers to the church. For a long time, if you were new, everybody's head went, they've not been here before. And then we would go and we would do what we're supposed to do is welcome them and love them and do all the rest of that. Okay, well now you look around and you go, I want to say hello, but I feel like I've met them before. Are they new or are they not? Because if they're new, I want to go welcome them. But if they're not, they're going to feel like I didn't remember their name. And, and, and that's what starts to happen, right? I'm seeing a few nodded heads. So I'm not the only one that does this, okay? So how can we as a congregation make sure that we maintain that loving welcome to the church while we grow and get bigger? Which, I mean, we're not that big, but, you know, as I want to build something that when we have a thousand people, we'll still work at bringing people in. So what we've done is we put together this four-part way of looking at newcomers that come to the church. That's going to, everything we do as a congregation, hopefully will fall into one of these four categories. The first one is invitation. And they all rhyme. I went to seminary. This is what I do, okay? <laughs> the first one is invitation. This is somebody's first contact with our church before they walk in through the doors. This could happen through the outreach. Maybe they, they find us through Angel Tree or through the, the school ministry or whatever it is. We're out at City Fest. They're handed something. This can be on the radio. This can be you saying, hey, would you come and visit our church? We'd love to have you. That's, that's your responsibility too. It's not my job to bring them in. It's your job to invite people here so that they can hear the gospel. So invitation, that's the first thing. Then the second one is congregation. This begins the first time somebody walks in that door. This is when somebody starts attending services, getting comfortable, meeting people, kind of sorting out, am I going to be here or am I not? Congregation. The third one is participation. At that point, this is your church. When you've decided this is where we worship, this is where we're going to tithe, this is where we're going to submit to the doctrine and the leadership, then it's time to start serving, finding a ministry where you can get involved, to get plugged in, to start participating more in, in things that are not just to receive, but to actually be feeding and blessing other people. And then the fourth one we're going to call multiplication. And this is, by definition, the most nebulous, because I might not know what that is for each person. At this point, when you reach stage four, hopefully you, you are equipped, you're taught, you know what you're supposed to do, and now you go out and do it. Some of y'all, that's going to be, we've got to go plant another Calvary Chapel in Tuscaloosa. And we're going to help you out and send you out. For some of you, it's, hey... I want to start reaching out to kids that don't have food in my neighborhood. Okay, what can we start doing? Now you've, you've really taken ownership of what God has asked you to do, and the church is helping you. We're going to start using this because it'll allow us to minister and adjust the teams in such a way that we are actively working to bring people in because we want to get more people and plug them in and have a bigger ministry. No, because I don't want anybody to walk through that door and number one, feel like they're not loved and cared for because they are. And number two, feel like I don't know what to do around here. I want to help. I want to serve. What do I do? We're going to work hard to make sure that we can do that. Not just saying, hey, check out the, you know, fill out a connection card if you want to do something. That's what the info desk is going to come in. That's where more of our uh, using planning center, which is our online software a little bit more. We're really going to start thinking, how do we bring people in? And I realize at first, it might not seem like much is happening. We'll probably mess it up a little bit. But if I can quote Zig Ziglar for a second, 
He said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly until it can be learned to be done well. Love the way he talks. Anything worth doing is worth doing poorly until it can be learned to be done well. So we're going to start working. Zach is actively working on this to make it so that somebody that walks in the door, they, we all as a congregation know how to help them get plugged in, start serving, learn their needs so that we can start meeting them, and then eventually help them start participating and serving in the church here. To that end, number three is we've got some fresh ideas. These are just some different ideas that we're bringing out. Different teams that need in order, we need in order to meet some of these needs and to give opportunities for service. Those are the two things that we have. As the church grows, certain needs that are met just naturally as people know about them, there need to be some organization in order to handle those things and also to give opportunities for people to participate. That is equally the goal for me is to have people using the gifts God gave them as to make sure we're doing everything that we're supposed to do. So there's, here's three new ideas that we're bringing out, and some of them are not so new. Number one is that InfoDesk team. These people are handling the announcements. They're handling all of our signups. They're also going to start handling the welcome, that when somebody comes in who's brand new, introduce them and say, hey, come on over and, and meet Zach or meet Aaron or meet whoever's over there, and they can be introduced and, and welcomed and shown this is who we are, this is what we believe, and this is how you can get plugged in. Second, we've got the youth ministry, which I, I've told Zach and I told Aaron that we've had some difficulties getting this started. Like, guys, you, you've just got to figure it out. Because <laughs> they're like, what do we, should we do this and should we do that? And I love giving advice, but I'm like, guys, you just have to make it happen. You have to make this happen. This ministry is too important. And today they're doing that event. There's 14 people coming out. And I'll say, by the way, as parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, whatever, if you really want to help see a youth ministry grow here, you want to see us discipling teens, how you can help is by committing your family to participating in that. To be the one that says, no, you're going. You're going. Because until you have a youth group, it's very hard to have a youth group. Because <laughs> what do people do? They say, do you have a youth ministry? Well, no, not yet. Okay, well, we'll come back when you have a youth ministry. But the problem is, until you have it, you can't have it. So if you're here, we need you to help us out with that. And the third team is we're working on, and this is still very early stages, is Steve has come up to me like, Tyler, we really got to work on developing a pastoral care team. Because as more people come up, there are more needs that come up. And Steve and some of y'all are just awesome at that. You just have an ability to find out where there are needs in the church, who's sick, who's hurting financially, who's got relationship troubles, who needs something done at the house, and meet those needs. Well, now as the church grows, we want to be able to identify those people more readily and also to train up more of you to help identify those needs and meet them. So those are some fresh ideas we have. Here's a quick one. Number four, we're working on improving the sanctuary space here. Look at that, that window behind you. It's big and it's glorious. You can see the devil staring us down as we try to. <laughs> well, one of the things that have been driving me nuts that we're finally working on getting in as the Lord is blessed is we're going to get a, a nice shade for that back, back window so that when I preach, it's not staring me dead in the face. So that way we can actually control the lighting on the stage and maybe make that a little more interesting, a little more colorful. I've got uh, Zach and Jacob are taking a field trip to Calvary Chapel Smoky Mountains, who they just, uh, I've looked at what they do on their stage and it's so cool. I'm like, go find out what they're doing and then bring it back here so we can do it here. Improving the cameras, all those sorts of things. And to say nothing of, I spend at least one long stretch a week standing in this room like this, thinking how do we rearrange these chairs to get more of them in there without making it uncomfortable. Constantly thinking about that. Number five is we're continuing to work on our online ministry. With Zach come on, sta on staff here, we have the time and the means to increase and improve our online ministry. 
We've actually gotten a few calls and emails from people saying, hey, I see what you're doing online. Keep it up. I love it. We want to use the internet for something good. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> the thought of something like that. You know, it's really... I don't really have time for this joke. I'm going to tell it anyway. It's just a story that it was funny because I grew up, you know, when the internet was first becoming a, a thing, and you kind of you learned like this is the internet and this is what it is and this is how people talk to each other and this is what a troll is and this is, you got to stay away from that. And then like somewhere around like 2015, 16, 17, it's like all the adults came online. <laughs> And everybody just realized, ha, ah, what's happening here? And somebody called me a Nazi online. It's like, well, yeah, that's kind of what happens, man. It happens all the time. And so, you know, many more people are now online than ever. And it's like, bruh, if we're going to do ministry, you got to do ministry there. Yep. We're not going to let it be. We, we don't abandon things. Oh, the, the, the wolves have taken over that. It's like, no, man, we got to get in there. So we're, we're doing videos. We're working on our social media presence, our building up the podcasts. And I'm going to say something that might sound really cringy to you, but I have been asked this. How do I help out with, with the online ministry? Well, you can sign up for the tech desk and you can help us upload things, help us prepare that. That's why we got so many people back there so that we can do it. But in all honesty, guys, you want to help us out, you can like, comment, and subscribe. <laughs> I'm dead serious. Because I'll tell you some things we're learning. One person that comments on one of these sermons is immediately going to get about triple the traffic as the other one does. Once you hit certain numbers of interaction, they boost it more. So if like, that was a great Bible study, somebody's got to hear about it. Share it, comment on it, subscribe. I'll just say, if you're not subscribed to our YouTube and Spotify, go home and do that today. And just kind of have it. So I don't really do that. Fine. But make that just part of your week that when the new one comes through, like it, just write, praise the Lord, I love Jesus, and then move on. And you will see how that traffic alone is going to build up what we're doing. Why? Because I want us to be famous? No, but because we're teaching the Bible in a place where most people hate the Bible. There's all sorts of weird people out there. And I, I'm just like, let's just have a, a, a normie revolution, a normie Christian revolution here. So if you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's not important. All right. Number six. This is something we've not done yet, but we're praying about and thinking about. We need to do an awareness campaign as a church here. There's one thing that I hate hearing more than anything else is, I didn't know there was a Calvary Chapel here. It's like, it's been five years. <laughs> so it's one of the things we're looking at. Now, listen, I, I am not a fan of big, gaudy marketing campaigns for churches. I don't want to ever be out there and like, be advertising in that sense. Like, you know, come on down to Calvary Chapel. We've got deals upon deals and styles upon styles. Like, I don't ever want to do that. All right? But, but things I had Zach looking at, like, all right, what does it cost to get a billboard in Trustville? What, what will the WXJC let us do in terms of getting more radio spots out there? Do we need to get stickers and put them on the back of our cars here? What does it cost to mail something out? Maybe the first time we start a new book, say, hey, we're going verse by verse through the book of Titus. Come on out. We'd love to see you there. Here's where you can find us online. Just to let folks know about us. That's what I want. I want people to know that we're here. And to be fair, I have been hearing a lot more of that, where I'll be around and say, we go to Calvary Chapel. I'll go, oh, you're, uh, you're right like near Publix, right? I'm like, yes, we are. <laughs> Thank you so much. Number seven, tied to what we're doing today after service, is regular training for our ministry teams. Now, Calvary Chapel as a whole can kind of have a very sink or swim method of, of ministry. It's like, get out there and see if you can fly. Jump out the nest and see if it works. And if you've crashed, then I guess you weren't called. Like, all right, I don't want to do that. 
We're going to start having regular meetings with our ministry leaders and our ministry teams in order to help everybody, first of all, know what their responsibilities are and help them, instruct them. That this is, if you're going to be part of the greeting team, this is what we're wanting you to do. These are the verses that support what you're doing. These are some things that we've noticed and we want to be constantly addressing them and, and making sure we're doing them right. Also, this is to help add new faces to the ministry teams. I told, uh, I told Jaron the other day when he was back at the soundboard, I said, I'm sick of looking at your face. Get somebody else back there. Get somebody else. Train him to do it. Jaron, I've known Jaron forever. He can, he can take it. But I might not say that to, you know, somebody else, but I'd say it to him. It's like, guys, this is not, oh, well, it seems like y'all have everything handled. No, no, it's not about handling it. It's about having everybody participate in what's going on. That's just as important. Okay? So we're going to start regularly training. Starting today after service, the ministry leaders will be here. Number eight, we are building the Ironworks Network. I know I've not talked about this enough, but we're going to keep talking about it. We are right now, well, I've had a vision since before we started this church to build and develop resources for the church as a whole, meaning podcasts, to write books, to produce conferences, all that kind of stuff. And where we want to do is build an online place where all those resources can be developed in a single place and put out there in a single place. So that eventually, here's the goal. Other pastors within Calvary Chapel that maybe have written a book but don't know what to do with it or have a great podcast that nobody knows about, if we can build something awesome, we can bring them on and now we can do for them what we didn't have at the time. If we go through the, you know, all the trouble and learning how not to do it until we built something, then we can invite other guys on and let's be the ones to do that. Calvary Chapel is not a denomination. They're not going to build it for us. There is no central hub that publishes and promotes these things. That's a gap that we can fill. And I'll tell you guys, I go to these conferences and I talk about it. Zach, how many pastors have told us, please tell me when you've done that? Because I don't want to build it, but I'd love to use it. It's like more than 10. Yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. I see that as something that we're going to be able to do and to continue to do. So more on that in the future. Here's a really cool one. And this is maybe the one that you're going to remember today. We need a permanent location. We need a permanent location. And all the nods in the room really encourages me. Because if it was a lot of this, like, hmm, then I'm like, all right, we need to back up a little bit. We are actively looking for a new location that we can purchase. One of the first things I asked Zach to do, the first thing I asked him to do was shampoo the carpets. But now he's been looking for that. And I will tell you guys this morning, we may have found one. We may have found one. Now, why do we want a, our own permanent space? Well, first of all, because this is a lease and it's, it's impermanent and who knows how long we're going to be here. It's also, it's a great location, but there are many people that are going to walk up and go, it's kind of a storefront. What's really happening? How long is it going to last? It can kind of send that, that message. And again, you can be like, well, you should just care about Jesus. And that, okay, well, that's, that doesn't help anybody, all right? Also, because I want to have a place that's big enough that we can fit everybody that God wants to send our way. I've told you, we are not strategically small. That's not something that we believe in. If you want to do it, great, another place. We want to reach as many people as we can. Because I know if those most important things that we have are going to never, ever change, that's something that needs to be known about and that lots of people need to participate in. So let me show you one option of what we're looking at. We've got just a couple pictures I want to show you here. This is not the official announcement, but the Lord just kind of sovereignly brought it together that this was the week. The board's been thinking about this. Let's get that first picture up there, Emily. Here's, here's one thing that we've been looking at. This is over on Trustville Clay Road on the corner of Trustville Clay and Husky Parkway right across from the Civic Center in Trustville. And uh, go to the next one. There's inside. 
We could fit 400 chairs in there if you know, we ignored fire code. But other than that, probably close to that. And then uh, the last one, it's four acres. So you see that big open space behind it, which makes my brain go, you can build more. <laughs> you can build it bigger. This doesn't just become the next thing. This can be the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. You can't see it, but next to it, there's a big hill that goes up that could be turned into parking or to other spaces or whatever. But um, just go ahead and, and go back to that first one again, Emily. This is, again, it's on Trustville Clay Road, right across from the Civic Center on the corner of Husky Parkway, right behind the Hewitt Trustville Football Stadium. And uh, this is not, again, the official announcement. This is the one we're looking at. It's either this or something like this. But why do I put this out there? Because we've already do been doing our due diligence. Some of you all in this room, a lot of you actually have been helping us out with that. Uh, looking at financial matters, looking at construction matters, looking at the, the site itself, uh, talking to other good pastors and, and other guys that say, what do you think? Are we crazy? Here's what I'm thinking. And uh, this might be it. I will tell you right now, we will need a lot of money to do that. And in fact, what I'm going to say today, I would like just, we, we talked about this as a board. It's like, are we ready to make the announcement? We said, well, no, not really. Said, but we said, how about this? How about we just do like a, a soft rollout? And what do I mean by that? We're, we have not made an offer. We're still working on, on whether or not we want to buy this one. But I'm telling you that we are right now actively looking at this or something like this. We have already set up through Tithely, which is what we use for our giving, a building fund. I would like you right now to start prayerfully considering giving to our next building. To start now. Why? Because churches are different when it comes to, you know, getting loans and things like that. Like they, we don't really usually sit on big piles of money. You have to do campaigns. You have to raise money. And I'm not launching it today, but I am saying, guys, we're going to need a lot to do this. <laughs> this room, like when we re renovated all this, that was $100,000. And you know what, guys? We raised that almost immediately. The Lord has always been faithful to this congregation. But for this, we're going to need three or four times that. And I'll have all the details when the day comes. But if it's not this, it's going to be something like this, which means it's going to need about that. So I'm going to ask you guys to start praying about giving to this and actually to start giving to this. Whatever we raise for the building fund is going to be set aside so that whether it's next month or next year, that we've got it, we've already started moving towards that. I'm happy to give you more details. You can drive by it. You can take a look at it. When we get close and we're ready to make an announcement, I'll make the announcement. But just cycle through those pictures one more time for me, Emily. That's outside. That's inside. And that's the backyard. That's that big, ugly trailer we'd have to have hauled away. But yeah, it's all the same. Yeah, this is the same thing. Yeah, so that's the front. Go through the next one. That's inside. Go to the back. That's the backyard. So again, we have not made an offer. We've not made a decision. But we really like this one. <laughs> and like I said, I don't mind opening it up and showing you guys a little bit. This is what we're thinking about it, and this is where we're going. And this is where the congregation has to come together in prayer, but also financially to do this. Because if everything I just said we believe, then I'm not afraid to take steps of faith and get out there and do it. Which leads us to the 10th thing that we're doing to move on and, and prepare ourselves for the next season as a church, which is renewed commitment. We do not want to just settle in to what is comfortable as a ministry. 
I know folks that will do that. It's like, look, I really don't want things to change because I come here and I get what I need and that's enough. I don't see what that as this church's mission. Our job is to get out there, make disciples, get as many people here as we can, teach them how to study the word, fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit, help them find out what God's called them to do, and then send them out to go do it. And there are so many opportunities here and abroad and online. Guys, the vision is so much greater than our ability. The minute you start doing things, you're just overwhelmed with things that need to be done. People that are being sex trafficked in our city, and there's opportunities to help. The prisons that are overflowing that need Jesus. The schools that we're all so desperate about. Then the needs are so great, but how are we supposed to meet them all? <laughs> there's an illustration that Tony Evans gives of a young man who living on a farm and was messing around in his dad's barn and fell into a giant vat of molasses. And he turned his eyes to heaven and said, Oh Lord, make my capacity equal to this opportunity. 